Welcome back, it's Melissa. And I do apologize for being a little behind on my episodes. I am trying to commit to one a week, which is pretty challenging, especially with all the trips that I've been taking. But I am done traveling for the year. No more trips until 2020. And the first trip that I'm anticipating is whenever my little sister has a baby because she lives in North Carolina and I will surely be going down there to meet my new niece or nephew. Not sure what she's having yet. She's waiting to find out, which is super cool because we suck at secrets. I say we because her and I are the same in this. We suck at secrets and surprises and she's going for the ultimate surprise. So that's pretty cool. But she's due in January, so I will probably travel to North Carolina in January, and then in February, I am headed to Los Angeles, California for a New Leaders Conference, and then in March, uh, Mark and I are going to Punta Cana, Dominican Republic. So, super excited about my trips for 2020, but also really excited to have a couple months where I am not traveling, because while I love it, it definitely runs me down. Definitely runs me down. So I'm excited to be back and full force, head back in the game, bring you guys some great content today. Episode 10, what we're going to be talking about is me. Ha ha. Um, not that that's new from what we normally talk about, but for those of you who follow me on social media, you know that I just celebrated my four and a half year soberversary. And that's what I'm going to be talking to you guys about today. So I guess I'm titling this episode, Cheers to Four and a Half Years, How to Rock Your Sobriety. Because I want to share it all with you guys because I have not rocked my sobriety. This is the third time that I have quit drinking, that I have gotten sober And so today I'm just going to kind of break it down for you guys on what each of those three times looked like, what was different, and why this will be my last, why there will never be a relapse. And I know that with confidence because there is nothing, there is no day, no situation, nothing so bad that I would give up everything that I have. Listen, before we do this, I have to be honest with you. I have been procrastinating recording this episode. I'm excited to do it because I really do want to give my story a purpose and help others. And I want to create awareness and I do want to help people. But it's really hard for me to openly admit the kind of person that I was when I was actively drinking. It's really hard as anyone who is recovered to face that that was you. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about it, but it's still hard. So just give me some grace today. And if you are listening to this as a recovered, I need you to give yourself some grace today too. Okay? All right, so let's do this. Hi, shit. (laughs) Okay, just rip off the band-aid. All right, so I was in college. And I just have to say that 
this is probably the hardest thing that I will ever share. Every time I have told my story, I talk about Kirk, I talk about the psych ward, and then I just say, and that's something that we just like to call college, and we'll just breeze through that. And I just move right along. Because the truth is, I barely survived. And I'm going to try to get through this. So, everyone parties in college, right? Like, that's not out of the norm, but my dad is a recovered alcoholic, and he was always honest with us and upfront with us, and, you know, he told us stories enough, not traumatizing stories or anything, but he told us enough to be aware, to be on the lookout, you know, to always have it in the back of your mind that this may be a piece or a part of you. And I didn't party in high school. Like my best friend was in a car accident my junior year. And I spent that entire year in, you know, Allegheny ICU or a rehab, Harmerville rehab. So I didn't party a lot in high school. And then I got to college and, oh gosh, good gracious, you can do it, Melissa, you can do it. It was a mess. I used alcohol to cope. I stopped taking my psych meds and was just drinking all the time. And it wasn't even like social drinking It was straight up binge drinking because that's the only way I drink. I remember even the first couple times that I drank, I didn't drink a lot, but I drank to the point of drunk. Like one of the first few times I ever drank, and I'll tell you that all the names will be changed in this episode to protect, well, frankly, anyone other than me, because I'm okay ish fessing up and owning up to these things that I did but I couldn't stand the thought of hurting these people again or more so I go to a graduation party and I get wasted my dad had to come pick me up the next day at work in the Taco Bell bathroom because I was puking and like that's just the worst, right? Like, it's just as bad as it sounds. You know, somebody asked me, one of my friends asked me the other day if I had a rock bottom. And I said that I had several. Like, I take your pick. I mean, college, the whole five years, because I had to go the victory lap. Because when I finished my first year of college, finals were the week after I spent in the psych ward, I think. So that was awesome, right? I ended that year with my GPA was a whopping, get this, 0.67. That's right. That's right. So I was on academic suspension. I went to CCAC for a semester while I lived at my parents, which is probably good. 
because it would have been really destructive at school. And even when I went back, it was hard because I was in this mental place because of Kirk that I didn't want to love anybody. I didn't want to let anyone in because that meant that I could lose someone like that again. And I didn't think that I would survive. And that's important because I was barely surviving. And I just couldn't handle the pain. So I drank. Until I couldn't feel it anymore. But it never went away. The only thing that happened is I added guilt Shame, regret, embarrassment to that list. So then, of course, I had to drink again. I couldn't stand my own life and my own reality. Like, literally couldn't stand it as a 20-year-old. The first time I quit drinking, I was 21. I was a 21-year-old who quit drinking in college, trying to get sober. And I'm going to share all of this with you. I started going to meetings. I went to NA because I found my we, and that's what she needed. So I went. But I think the fact that I was going to an addict's an addict heavy meeting as an alcoholic that I still had that I don't know doubt or disbelief in there like well this isn't me right and I'm not saying oh I don't know what I'm saying the meetings were helpful because I was also getting over a breakup I quit drinking. This is somewhat embarrassing, but whatever it takes, right? Whatever it fucking takes. You guys know I'm a helper. I will do more for others than for myself. So I quit drinking to save my relationship that I had seriously tanked, by the way. And we'll just call this person Mo. I have had such anxiety about recording this episode because I can't bring myself To share the details of that relationship. To share what I did. I just can't. But I'll tell you this. I didn't like that person. I didn't like her very much. I didn't like her at all. So I decided to give it up. To focus on me. And so now I'm a senior in college, my first senior year, and I don't drink. And not only do I not drink, but I was the drunk girl at every party, the life of the party, the person playing beer pong, the person under the table, the girl running around half naked at the party. Good God, I went through this phase where I would wear underoos. Yeah, that's right. Like the little boy underwear with the shirt 
and they match. And I think I was, I think it was Superman. Um, fucking, oh gosh. And I remember even waking up at a party one time in that outfit. And I just looked at my roommate, Gina. And I was like, oh no. Like, did I? And she was like, oh yeah. And I was fuck, right? Maybe I should also add that I woke up on that couch soaked because my classic move was to get wasted, pass out, and then piss myself. Super proud moment right now. I was always so embarrassed that most of the time I didn't even say anything. I want to vomit just saying that. Like, I'm literally nauseous right now. That was me. That was the kind of person you brought to your party. Oh, fuck. But we're not going to keep focusing on that because alcoholism does not come in one shape or size. And that's, I think, what makes it hard is that it looks different on everyone. You know, there are some people who drink heavily every day. There are some people that have to have a drink every day. I could go for a week, weeks even, without drinking and be totally fine. But when I had that first drink, it was surely taking me until the last drink, which... It was usually passed out. Rinse and repeat, right? I'm not going to keep saying it. Eww. So blackouts were definitely my thing all the time. And, you know, people get tired of you asking them what happened when they have to fill you in on all of the embarrassing things that you said all the shameful things that you said and just your behavior in general because that's not who I am and that's not how I would ever purposely treat people. But I was also very broken and I was hurting and I was bitter And it was just such a hard time. But when I drank, I lost the filter and I took it out on everyone. So when I got sober, it was like it all came back because I wasn't dealing with any of it. And so I'm really glad that I had my we, that I went to the meetings because it was helpful to talk about it. Or to even hear the stories in the room knowing that you weren't the only asshole. That other people were crying as they shared stories about things that they did. I just came home from this leadership retreat and I was sitting bawling. Like tears are streaming down my face. My sister puts her arm around me because I listened to a woman on stage say how she left her baby in the car because she was so drunk she followed her husband in the store. 
That never happened to me, but I heard the self-hatred in her voice, and I know what it feels like to feel that way. I know what it feels like to think unimaginable things, and then you did them. That was you. You can't only blame it on a disease, even if it is legit. I know how powerful it is to hear other people's stories and know that you're not the only asshole. You're not the only person who hated themselves, who did awful things. And it's even more powerful when you hear these stories and you see the person they are now. And that's the only reason why I'm making this episode. Why I'm sharing these uncomfortable things. Because I feel like people need to know. Not all people. I mean, sure, whatevs. But I'm telling myself that someone out there needs this message to save their life. Okay, so we're moving on. So my first... Sober semester in college, I made Dean's List as if that wasn't a sign that I should be sober. You know, I don't know what is. But I also started going to our college gym. And I won't say that I did it in, you know, the best way because... No, this is just how I used to work out, I guess, because I didn't really know what I was doing to have a short, effective workout. So I would spend two hours, maybe three if I was doing cardio, in our gym. And that was kind of how I dealt with it all. Like, I would just get on the treadmill, and I would put in music, and I would just run, And sometimes the tears would fall. And sometimes I would feel strong. And I think I fell in love with exercise at that point because I realized that it could take something away that I was carrying and also give me something that I needed. Since I gave up the alcohol and started working out, Obviously, I started losing weight and I had struggled with my weight at this point because after freshman year, I was put on those psych meds and they made me gain weight. And then I was, you know, after that, it just kind of spiraled into binge drinking and late sheets runs and things like that. But so I lost weight and I started to feel good. Like I was getting good grades. I was tutoring at school, so that's how I was bringing in some income. And, you know, I was kind of even getting over the fact that my relationship wasn't going to start again. And then I had to get comfortable with the fact that I was staying sober for myself, that I was doing this for me, because maybe I originally did it in an attempt to save that relationship, but then... You know, there was no denying that I liked that person more than the person who had to constantly apologize for her actions, right? I liked Melissa, who was on Dean's list and who was 
doing good things and tutoring and helping and being a good roommate and a good friend instead of waking up naked not knowing what happened. That was better. It was way better. Oh, fuck. I knew I was going to have to bring this up in this episode. And hot damn, again, something that I don't share a lot or at all. So we're just going to break the ice here. Um, My husband was the third man to propose to me. Or give me a ring because the first one, I don't even think there was a proposal. We kind of just decided we should get married because we both had the same faith, which is really hard to find because I have a really unique religion and, and faith and beliefs and all that jazz. And he was sober and he was recovered and I was sober and I was recovered And we were moving in the same direction, in good directions, right? And so I'm finally doing like really good things in my life. I'm finally like showing up as a good person. I'm in my first ever sober relationship. And because we were in the same faith there was no hanky panky going on so we talked a lot (laughs) oh can't even believe i'm putting this out there all right anyways keep keep moving keep moving (sighs) he was dealing with some stuff from before he got clean and sober and so He actually had to do some time in the county jail while I was in college. And he was on work release. And he was working half an hour away on houses that his mom was flipping. So I would drive from college to pick him up to take him to work, which is over an hour total. Spend some time with him, help him work on a house, drive him home. And that was how I spent time with my fiance. Oh, gosh. Okay. His family, even though they've known me my whole life, like I have a birthday card in my baby book from his family congratulating my parents on my birth. So they've known me my whole life. They told him that I was no good. That I wasn't a good girl. That I wasn't a nice person. That I was no good for him. His family basically ended that relationship and destroyed all confidence that I had and I hate to admit that but I was I was a good person I wasn't doing those things anymore and people still couldn't love or accept me 
And it was hard to do those things. It was hard to stay sober in college. I thought, these people love me. And they know me. Like, they know me. They've watched me grow my whole life. So if they think that there's no good in me, then maybe they're right. Because if you're an alcoholic or you're an addict, it doesn't take a whole lot for you to question your worth. It doesn't take much at all. And I don't know if I've even ever admitted that, but they destroyed me. My first drink was at Augie's Roadhouse at a work function because I got a text message from my roommate Gina that her mom died. And it brought it all back. The pain of losing someone. The fact that he died and I was this horrible person left here. I didn't get drunk that day. But I lost any control that I had. I don't know if I had this confidence build up because I had made it a year I had gone to the bars to do karaoke with work friends and drank water or Diet Coke. I was the sober driver that drove everyone home. Or I don't know if I just couldn't take the pain anymore. Honestly, I can't remember. But I do know that the blackouts and the really bad nights didn't come back right away. It was all gradual again. Like, my tolerance was gone. And I was very much thinking that I was in control. And in the beginning, I could have a couple and be done. Or I could have even more, but not blackout. I think it took a few months for my first blackout. But they came back. So did my signature move. So did all the guilt. And that was my first relapse. I had people tell me that, well, if I could be in college and not drink, I couldn't be an alcoholic because that takes incredible control. You're right, it does. And I lost every bit of that fucking control when I took my first drink. That is an alcoholic. That's what that is. But even Mo told me that he just thought I was a college girl who partied too hard. And I wanted to believe that. I didn't want to be the 21-year-old, the 22-year-old that had to go the rest of her life sober. The rest of her life Turning down drinks, getting the looks, getting the questions, having the guilt, having the conversations. I didn't want to, I didn't want that life. I didn't want to be that person. And so I didn't have that life. I think I well, I don't think. I know I was ashamed. 
of it, of the disease, of my actions, because I didn't see any good in it then. I wasn't doing any good with it then. I was barely surviving. And you know what? That's okay. Because I did survive. And that's the most important part. And so I'm always trying to give that girl grace. I'm always trying to thank that girl. Because without the valleys that she had to walk through, I wouldn't be where I am. The view wouldn't be nearly as spectacular. Okay, now we get to fast forward six years, my favorite, fast forwarding through college. Whoop! And it's 2010. Holy crap, this was ugh, the hardest year of my life other than the year that Kirk died. The hard, maybe even harder. Like the whole year was just fucking hard. I got in my head about Mark being right for me. I didn't think I deserved someone that good, even if I didn't want to admit it. I didn't think it was a healthy relationship because we never fought or argued. I actually said it's too easy. I thought that I deserved hard and horrible things. I hate that about myself, but it's true. It's absolutely true. 2010, Melissa did not believe she deserved anything good. In 2010, she didn't get a whole lot of good stuff. So I got a DUI May 19th, 2010, the night before my mom's birthday. Yes, I'm such an awesome daughter. Happy birthday, mom. Please come pick me up in a police station. Hysterical. Wasted. Okay, I don't really want to share this, but I need to be open. I need you to see that I wasn't a complete disaster. I was a good person when I wasn't drinking. I was totally fine and normal when I wasn't drinking. I got that DUI. Oh, please forgive me. I got that DUI in my company car, like with the company logo on the side. Can't believe I'm even admitting that, but... That's what it was. That's what it was. And my BAC. Here we go with our numbers again. Ready? Oh, I kicked my GPA's ass. Don't you worry about that. My BAC was 0.297. And that's not a joking matter. That's comatose. When I went to see the judge, she went through probably 75 people before me. And when she read my paper and my BAC, 
She told me that I should be dead. She told me that I should be in the hospital. She told me I should thank my lucky stars that I'm standing in front of her that day. And she was right. I was the highest BAC in that room by far. Then we get in the DUI class and I'm the highest in that class too. Not only the highest in the class, but I was higher than the recovered alcoholic who had four DUIs that came to talk to us about his sobriety. Like, are you kidding me? So I sent Mark a text message. I couldn't even tell him in person. I said, I'm done drinking. And he had a case of beer at home that he had just got for me that he threw in the dumpster or maybe in his car and like took it somewhere else and gave it to his dad. I think he took it, put it in his trunk of his car so he could take it to his dad's, which was about time we started replenishing their beer since I used to drink it all. Every Sunday, whenever we would be there. They're probably saving so much money in that beer fridge by now. Um, anywho, you're welcome. Again, at this time, I am without a license because you have to give up your license. It's true, by the way, what they say. You cannot afford a DUI. I think it was like, I don't know, it's between three and five grand that I ended up paying. It's expensive. You lose your license, you have to take all these classes, and it's like, how the heck are you supposed to get to classes in the county that you got the DUI in? So at least get it in your own fucking county. Um, Mine was not. So I had to move in with my parents. Luckily, my employers did not fire me. They did not know it was the company car, though. I couldn't tell them. They didn't ask. Thank God. But they let me work out of their Washington office where my mom lives, where I got the DUI, where I had to take the classes. So my parents chauffeured my ass around for two months. And my office was right across the hall from a gym. So I paid the gym membership. And sometimes I had to go in early. Sometimes I had to stay late because I was waiting on rides from my parents and what worked with their schedule. So again, I spent my time at the gym. This is the second time in my life that I lost more than 35 pounds. Also, the second time I got sober. I'm just going to say those two are connected because... It was one way that exercise for me was one way that I could start to deal with it, to try to deal with it, to do something positive for myself, to feel better, and to try to work out all the shit while I was doing it. I was really big on cardio because I could just zone out. So I would do those like elliptical things or the treadmill and I would just put on music and often it was like, Music that would make me cry, really emotional music, something like that, because it was almost my therapy. And a lot of recovered turn to exercise, and you can do it in a healthy way because it's so good for you. You get those wins. You feel stronger. And as someone who is trying to do the hardest fucking thing out there, which is getting clean and sober, you need to feel strong. 
You need those wins. You need to feel good. I'm not saying that you need to spend three hours in the gym and eat fucking lean cuisines like I did because no, no, you're going to burn out. You're not going to be able to keep it up. And it's all going to come crashing down. So round two this time, I started to own the fact that I was an alcoholic a little bit more. Like sitting in those classes and hearing those guest speakers really struck home for me. And I think at this point, you know, that's where I realized that this is definitely who I am. Like I definitely have a problem with alcohol. I can't control it. It changes who I am. And it doesn't improve my life in the least. But it's hard because my brain is wired to want it all the time, to think that it is the answer to all the stress, to all the problems, to everything, to celebrating, to having a stressful day, to your kids not listening, like all of it. My brain is wired to want the drinks. Even if I'm around other people that are drinking, I'm always aware of who's drinking, what they're drinking. Now, it really doesn't bother me and you know, people ask me all the time, and I'm like, oh, no, go for it. I actually feel better and stronger when other people are having drinks. But that wasn't always the case. I made it six months the second time. I don't really want to share what stopped it, but I feel like I need to because I feel like there are always going to be people who are super close to you. And maybe even have it in the family. They've heard the same stories. They've seen the same things. They know it's in their genetic makeup, right? And they still don't get it. And for me, that person told me that I wasn't an alcoholic. This person watched me go through everything. They watched me get sober the first time and they watched me get crushed but they were also crushed at the same time so I don't think they really noticed that but still they told me that I wasn't an alcoholic and I thought well I want to believe that I mean we we shared the same genetic like I don't know, crapshoot, whatever, like, right? Like, it's in your genes. If it's in your genes, you're at risk. Like, if it's in your family, if it's heavy in your family and you're not the one that got it, you still need to be talking to your kids about it. If your siblings are, if your parents are, if your uncles are, or if your grandparents are, your kids need to know. Addict or alcoholic, they should know what may be in store for them. So maybe it won't come as quite of a shock. Maybe when people tell them that they aren't, they won't listen. That person knew someone who... Now here's the thing. People can have unhealthy drinking habits. Absolutely. Mark drank unhealthy in college. He was president of his fraternity, used to drink fifths of Jim Beam like crazy, 
even when we had an apartment or a house together before we were even dating, we worked together and lived together. And it's a crazy story. I think I've shared it anyways. Only thing, good thing my drinking ever got me was a husband, by the way. But um, he would get wasted and just take off running. Like, you know, crazy things. Like, Mark doesn't act like that anymore. Um, I think I've maybe seen him drunk once since I quit drinking. And it's been four and a half years now. And so people ask me that a lot too. Does Mark drink? And I'm getting totally off topic here. Out of order, whatever, not off topic. And I'll say, yeah, he has whiskey in the house. There's whiskey in my house right now, but it's also what we agreed on. At first, there was no alcohol in the house. I couldn't have any in there. I just needed no temptations. I needed a safe place where I could be safe and not be tempted by anything around me. But he'll, even if he brings home beer, he just brings home beer that I didn't drink. So he doesn't buy Corona. He doesn't buy Miller Lite. He doesn't buy Yingling. He doesn't buy Blue Moon. He doesn't buy those things because that's what I drank. And liquor, I gave up liquor years before I really got sober because it would be like this. Melissa would be fine, 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 fucking brick wall. What the fuck happens? Like, Literally every single time I drank hard liquor, I would be like, there was no like getting drunk and then like wasted. It was like, I'm fine, fine, fine. I'm fucking shmammered. Somebody's got to clean me off the floor. I'm busting down doors. Like all of those things have happened, by the way. Um, so where was I? Right. So this person knew Someone in their life who struggled with alcohol at times even got a DUI. And then they were able to give it up. And years later, they were able to introduce it back here and there. And that's fine. But to me, as an alcoholic, I'm just going to say, I don't think that person's an alcoholic. Because if you're an alcoholic, there is no control. There is no just being strong enough to deal with it. And that's what I felt like was coming at me. I felt like someone was just telling me that I wasn't trying hard enough, that I wasn't strong enough because that's something that I struggle with. And instead of staying on the path that I knew was right for me, I wanted to be better. I wanted to be stronger. I wanted to be normal. I didn't want to sit in a room full of people in classes and listen to how awful I was. It's not what I wanted to do. I don't even remember my first drink after that one. But I know it wasn't my last. You see, the only way I stay in control of my disease is to remain in control. And that means never taking a drink. One drink is too many and never enough. Like, my life motto, even sober, I'm drinking always. Like, water, tonic, my bubbly waters, my shakes. Like, I don't know, just always drinking. Always drinking. Anyways, I think the big lesson here on both of these relapses is that you can't let other people fuck with your sobriety. No one else's opinion can matter. And you know what? When I quit drinking that third time, 
This time, guess what? I don't give a fuck who I offend. I don't give a fuck what has to happen. I'm going to be tasteful about it, sure, but if I have an anxiety attack on a cruise ship, which I did, and if I have a mental breakdown on a cruise ship, which I did, but I stayed sober, all is good with me the next day. All is good with me the next day. I don't care if I made an ass out of myself, if people are judging me, if somebody wants to say something to me, come on up. Say it. It ain't going to fucking change me. I will not let anyone else take this from me ever again. So let's talk about what's different. Let's talk about this third attempt, my last attempt, my final attempt, how I am comfortable living with my sobriety, how I own my sobriety, how I maintain my sobriety, because isn't that what we're all after. And if you're listening to this as someone who is not working on their own recovery, I hope that maybe you take away some empathy or understanding for maybe someone in your life who is struggling with an addiction. And I want to say that There are so many more addictions out there than just drugs and alcohol. I feel like we all struggle with our own addiction of some sort in some way. Yes, mine's pretty big, but to you, I'm sure yours is big and hard to overcome. And are you embarrassed about it or ashamed of it? How many times have you tried to get a handle on it, right? I don't want this to just be about my disease. Of course, it's heavy on that because, again, I share what I go through. But if you turn to food at night, if your bottle of wine is a full cake or a pizza, you still have to do the things, right? You can't keep eating your feelings away. You can't keep eating the problems away. I can't keep drinking my problems away. Okay, so I need to fast forward. (laughs) I'm taking you guys all over the world here and hopping from year to year. 2015. January of 2015, I went to a live event for the company I work with for coaching, right? We have super weekends. So we went and I sat in these seats And I heard this woman up on stage who had a horrible past. Guys, I don't even remember her story because it didn't matter. What mattered is what happened when I heard it. Because I heard her stand up on that stage as a happy, healthy person, proud of who she is. But she came from her own ruins. And what that did for me sitting in those stands was I saw my own. The truth is, it didn't matter where she came from. All that I needed to know was that you could come from a shitty place and turn that into something beautiful. And not only that, but she was on that stage sharing her story, which impacted me. 
which set me on a path to wanting to be better for myself. And I looked at my husband that night and I said to him, that's going to be me. I'm going to be on that stage. I'm going to be a success story. And I don't even know if I was talking about the weight or my life, if I'm being honest, because I still had a long way to go with both. More the mindset, though, way more the mindset. And I'm more proud of that journey, for sure. Having sat in those seats and being impacted by her story the way I was, I knew I had to share mine. I knew I had to share mine. And at that time, thinking about that scared me. It scared the bejesus out of me because I was still drinking. And I thought, how am I going to share my life? How am I going to work on myself and become a better person and then have to apologize on a Sunday morning for my Saturday night behavior? And the more personal development I did, the more I shared. And the more I shared, the more scared I got. Because I knew that I wasn't sharing everything. I would never post pictures of myself on social media with a drink in my hand. Even if we were at an occasion where people were all having drinks, no. I wouldn't. I refused to draw attention to myself in any of those situations. And I say this, I've said this in previous episodes, that great things come from inspiration or desperation. I was inspired sitting in those seats, hearing that story. That is a pivotal point in my sobriety because it sparked something in me to become better. And on my quest to become better, this was in the way. My disease, who I was, what the alcohol made me, it was in the way. I knew, finally, I never got this, I never understood this, but in order to be the best version of myself for other people, I have to become the best version of myself for me. Moms struggle with this all the time, that they put their kids first. They put their spouse first. And while I am always giving to my children and giving to my spouse, I take care of me first. Because if I'm a hot mess, if I'm dead, if I get in my car, drive drunk, and kill someone, what kind of life am I leaving for my children? How am I showing up for them in that way, in that manner And the answer is I'm not. I'm just not. The next event I went to, we do them every quarter. So the January event is when I dove in. I went back in April. And that's my sobriety date. That event is my sobriety date. I was in a room full of people that inspired me. I was in a room full of people just showing up every day trying to get better, sharing whatever that looked like for other people because they really and truly want to make a difference in this world and I wanted so badly to be one of them. 
And I knew, I knew I didn't want it to be true, but I knew it was the one thing holding me back for the person who I really want to be, the person who I truly am. I'm not saying that it hasn't been hard, but I am telling you that I've never looked back. And this sober trip has looked different. I came out on social media after only being sober for three weeks. And as a health and fitness coach, I came out with a Transformation Tuesday post. It was a tall, beautiful, mouth-watering glass of blue moon. And then it was a Shakeology. (laughs) And you know what? It was a really big deal. And not only that, is that it was now saving me money. So I replaced, on average, I was at least having one tall beer, which is, I think, 30 ounces, right? So that's 210 ounces a week. That's pretty accurate. So I replaced one tall, giant, blue moon daily with dense superfood nutrition. And it was changing me. It wasn't the only thing, but it is the thing that started it all. And that's so crazy, like so crazy that the fact that I needed to lose a hundred pounds, the fact that I was so desperate, that I hated myself so bad, ultimately led to the best thing that I've ever done for myself. It's crazy. It's crazy. Speaking of crazy, I am four and a half years sober. And this time, there was no rehab. And there hasn't been a single meeting since. And I'm not opposed to the meetings But I want to talk about this. I want to talk about the fact that there are many ways to recover. And your way may look different for you, but you need to be aware of the situations that you're putting yourself in. You need to make sure that you have a community of support. You need to make sure that you have a sponsor or someone that you can reach out to. Here's what I did know. I knew I had a community that would support me to be better because they already were. I knew that I had accountability because I was already showing up on social media, sharing my journey. I knew that I had someone, my unofficial sponsor, call him my dad in my corner, that I could call him, that I could vent to him, that he would understand Because you definitely need people who get it. It's only something, like, it's one of those awful things that you don't get it until you fucking get it, right? Like losing a parent. I can only empathize. I mean, my heart can break because I'm a huge empath, but I don't know what that actually feels like to live that every day, right? It's different. It's the same thing about the disease. So I know 
And I knew that my dad was always a text or a phone call away. And not only that, but it's heavy in my family and in Mark's family. So I know that there are still members in our families that attend meetings on the regular. And if I needed it, a meeting was only a text away. I knew these things. So I was comfortable and confident going into my sobriety this way. I need to make sure I emphasize that. I say it all the time. BB was my AA. You need to make sure you have that. And if I'm being honest with you guys, there was another reason why I didn't go to the meetings is because I was on a path to becoming better and I was really, truly making progress on that path. But I knew that I couldn't spend hours every week reliving all of the awful things that I did and said. I just couldn't. It's been 16 years since I quit drinking that first time and there are things that I still couldn't even go there with for you guys today. I knew that I might not stay sober if I had to constantly remind myself what kind of a monster I was when I did those things. It took me a year, a full year before I started to forgive myself. I did a lot of work in that year too. That was the year that I started the EMDR therapy. Oh yeah, I also went into a car accident, eight months sober, and broke my fucking neck. Let's talk about that for just a second. I was so scared because I've heard the stories of recovered getting hurt It happened to my first fiance's dad. He was sober for years, years, like over a decade. And he broke his femur. And he got hooked on pain pills. And he started drinking again. And he died because his liver burst. My fiance was in the house. He's destroyed for life and it breaks my heart. And this is what the disease does. This is what addiction does. And it's never gone. You don't heal. You don't get over this. There is no controlling it. So imagine how scared I was eight months sober knowing that I'm going to have to take narcotics. Like, who knows what the fuck was in my future? I was laying on a hospital bed with my neck in a brace. My hand is casted. I've got, like, braces on my legs. And, I don't know, I think I had four hours of tests. X-rays, CT scans, CAT scans, you name it. MRIs. I had no idea what was in store for me. But I did know that my sobriety came first. I passed up a girl's weekend in my first year sober. A bachelorette weekend for someone I love very much. 
but I knew what it was going to be. I knew they were all going down there to celebrate, to drink, and have a good time. And my husband wasn't going, so I wouldn't have my rock. And I just, I thought about it, and I said, you know, I really want to be there for them. I want to be a part of that experience, but I don't want to put myself in that situation. I don't want to take myself states away from everything and tempt myself for a whole weekend with that. So I didn't go. She still loved me. She actually, we kind of had a mutual conversation about it, where she was kind of giving me a a, a very sweet out if I wanted it. And I took it. I took it. She didn't blame me for that. I didn't blame me for that. Guess what, guys? I'm still fucking sober, so I win, right? (laughs) Not I win, but it was a win. It was a victory. I was in therapy when the accident happened, and I'm really grateful for that because I was in therapy originally dealing with the result of Kirk's car accident, and then I was in my own car accident, and I'm sober, and it's just, oh, it's a fucking mess. And you know, alcoholics, addicts, we don't want to deal with the pain. We don't want to deal with any of it. We just want to drink our problems away. We just want to use, like, right? Like, I, it's, it's the way that we're hardwired. We're not just being babies about it. Let me just say that, all right? I've wanted a drink. It's Monday at 11 o'clock. And I've wanted a drink since Friday at 9.30 a.m. It doesn't go away. The urge to drink doesn't go away. The stress in my life that makes me want to drink doesn't go away. But here's the thing. I know without a shadow of a doubt that I am a much better person sober. Like, no question. No question. So nothing in my life is so bad that it could lead me to drinking Because that's not going to fix anything. My answer will never be in the bottom of a bottle. Ever. I'm never going to find it there. The only thing I'm going to find is my death certificate. That is what is in the bottom of that fucking bottle. And I ain't looking for it. You need to look at it like that. Like it's got to be that black and white for you. I went on a cruise 11 months sober. Not sure if I'd recommend that for people. On the first night, we get on the boat. I also didn't know that apparently I have a little bit of sea legs. So we're getting ready in my sister's room. And this is, a, this is even, this is a free cruise that I earned with my husband. First cruise that I've ever been on. It was our first trip that we've taken since our honeymoon. I was so excited. So we're going on this amazing trip and I'm so excited. And, you know, I don't even, like, I'm comfortable with my sobriety at this point. You know, I've had a sober wedding. I rocked it, which was amazing, by the way. Um, You know, waking up The day after a wedding, having somebody thank me for being helpful was definitely a change of pace. Like the Melissa who drank was the person who ruined weddings or caused a scene or I don't even know, right? Just no good things. No good things. 
And so that was really, really cool. And so now I always make it an effort where if I'm in an uncomfortable situation, I just try to be helpful. I just try to be helpful. And I also make sure that I stay around long enough to see the people get wasted. Because once you see the people get wasted, you're like, yeah, I definitely don't want any part in that. Remember when that was me? Yeah, no, thank you. Um, I'm good. So I do like to stick around for that if I'm feeling up for it. But anyway, so first day on the cruise, all I had was like an apple or an orange, not enough food. We had just finished up a cleanse, and so I'm feeling, like, really healthy at this point. We get on the boat, and there's pizza, and I was like, ugh, I don't want pizza. Like, it just did not sound good to me. Nothing against pizza. I fucking love pizza, by the way. But so we were just going to get some food later, and then my sister had an extra ticket to this, like, VIP party, and our luggage wasn't there yet, so I had to try to find some of her clothes, and she was in the front room of the boat, and you could really feel the water and the waves. I also have travel anxiety I didn't even know this was a thing because this is literally the first trip that I've taken since my honeymoon okay so I had an anxiety attack in my sister's bathroom like in her room trying to get ready wearing clothes that were not mine I don't feel super comfortable I'm going to a party where there's gonna be drinks like all of these things I don't know it's just too overwhelming next thing you know I'm like bare ass on her bathroom floor just trying to feel the cold tiles and bring myself back down I don't even remember what happened I just remember sitting in the bathroom like doing some serious breathing exercises telling myself like you are not having a heart attack you are not dying like get a hold of yourself I don't know what the fuck is happening right now because I've never experienced any kind of anxiety or panic panic attack I have anxiety but alcohol is a depressant And so the alcohol used to suppress my anxiety when I would travel or when I would get ready for things because I always pre-gamed. When I was getting ready to go anywhere, I was drinking. I was drinking. So I never realized it. I didn't, like, I wasn't expecting it at all. Well, got ready. My sister and her friend were going to the party. I was going to meet them there. It's a really big-ass boat. They got lost on the way. I'm at this party, starving, just coming off an anxiety attack. All the guys went to dinner. I don't even know where the fuck that is, right? No one's phones work on this boat. It's day one. Nobody's Wi-Fi is working. A disaster waiting to happen, y'all. So I circle this party, and you get drink packages on cruises if you've never been on one. And Mark got a drink package with alcohol. I got a drink package that you're only allowed pop, soda, water, like basic stuff. I just wanted it for tonic. That's what I drink. I drink tonic and lime. It's my mocktail. I feel like I'm still having a drink when I'm not having a drink. And it's more fun than water. When I quit drinking the last time, I started drinking more pop, more diet pop, because I wasn't going to tell myself if I was at an event and there was alcohol that all you could drink was water. So I actually got pretty addicted to Diet Coke, Diet Pepsi when I got sober. And it took me two and a half years, about two years, about almost three years to give it up. 
I didn't even pressure myself or push myself in that because I told myself that I needed to have an option, that I needed to have an out, that I had to have something that I felt okay drinking in that situation. So I didn't guilt myself too much about it, even though I know it's bad for you. And it actually took me more tries. It took me way more than three tries to give up diet pop, and it only took me three serious attempts to give up alcohol. So it was actually a little harder because there wasn't a clear, hey, you're an asshole when you do this. It was like, hey, this shit isn't really good for you. Okay, it's not good for you at all, but it's not going to kill you today. Maybe, right? Anyways, so I'm at this party, and... It is a VIP party, so they don't care what kind of drink card you have. You walk in, and there are trays of wine, beer, and champagne. And people, the servers are literally just taking them off the trays and holding them out and putting them in people's hands. And I'm like, fuck, these are all of my favorite things. (laughs) And I just keep walking, and I do three laps of that party looking for my sister and I never found her. I found the food table and grabbed a couple things because I was like, if you don't eat soon, you're going to like lose it. Like get some food. Like you're starting to melt down again. I started to feel that heaviness, my heart pounding, you know, that anxiety attack was coming back on. I was like, oh my gosh, Melissa, just get it together. Like eat some food. I did one more lap and I turned down the last drink. I knew I had hit a point where I knew I could not turn down one more drink. And the reason why I knew that is because I stopped and said to myself, even if it was just in my head, well, you've walked this party four fucking times and nobody here knows you. And if you ever find yourself saying something like that, well, no one knows me. No one would ever know. You need to get the fuck out right now. And that's what I did. Only I had no way to get to Mark. He had our room key. So I went back to our room and I sat outside our door with no luggage, no key. And I just cried. And I just sat there and I cried. And then our, I don't even know what they're called. So when you're on a cruise, there's, they are amazing, by the way. They are always in the halls. They bring you stuff. Like, I knew mine by name. He was getting me scissors to cut my K-tape this last time. Like, awesome. Um, But anyways, he comes by and asks if I want to be let into my room. And I said, yes, please. So he lets me in my room and someone was looking out for me that day because my phone that wouldn't let me text, wouldn't let me send a message, it wouldn't let me do any of the things somehow allowed me to FaceTime my dad on the ocean and I cried to him and I told him that I wanted to drink and I told him I wanted to drink so bad. And I told him I didn't know where Mark was. And that I needed Mark. And I didn't know if I could do it. And he talked me down. And my mom called Mark somehow. And told him to get back to the room that I needed him. 
And he didn't leave my side the rest of that trip. He was my, he is my rock. And I learned then that I cannot put myself in situations alone. So that was tip number one. Later that night, I went looking for my sister after Mark and I got some food. And I found her in the lobby. And when I tried to tell her what happened, I started crying. I lost it. And if you guys have been following all the episodes, you know that my sister's anxiety is very much on what other people think, feel, if, you know, people are uncomfortable and things like that. So it hurt, it bothered her to see me exposed like that. And I think she tried to, you know, take me to the side and in her best efforts to support and love me, she told me, that I didn't need to drink for people to love me and to have a good time. And while I understand her needing and wanting to tell me that, I stopped her and I said, April, I gotta tell you that I don't care if I make a scene. I don't care if I'm crying in the lobby. All that matters to me at the end of the day is that I stay sober. And if that's a hot fucking mess, then it's a hot fucking mess. You have to do whatever you have to do to stay sober. That needs to be your number one priority every single day. If that's you need to get out of a situation, you get out of the situation. If that's you needed to pass on a work event or a happy hour event or even a trip or a getaway, you do it. That trip is not worth the life that you've created, the life that you can create a sober life. I own it. I talk about it all the time. I will tell anybody and I'm totally comfortable with it. The next cruise we went on, I walked on, I walked right up to that guy and I was like, one, I need some C-bands. Two, I don't drink. I would like the lowest package, please. And he was like, okay, well, is anyone else in your room drinking? And I said, yes, my husband's getting a drink package. And he said, You can't share packages like that. Like, you can't have someone in a room with a drink package and someone without a drink package because they think you'll share. And I said, oh, I'm a recovered alcoholic. Trust me, I'm not sharing with anybody. I am not paying for alcohol that I cannot drink. And he looked at me like I had three heads. I don't think anyone has ever told him, well, I'm an alcoholic, so I'm I'm not paying for that. Like, I'm not taking that package. Most people probably would have been like, oh, that's awkward. I'm just going to take it, right? And some people even, like, even in the past, like, I would try to have drinks and, like, act like I was fitting in. And now I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I like drinks too much. And that's why I can't have any. I make jokes about it. It's not a joking manner. It's not a laughing manner. But I'm comfortable with it. I want people to be comfortable with it around me. I want them to know that it's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm fucking proud because it took a lot to get here. It took two failed attempts and me being squashed like a bug to own it, to rock it, to be proud that I'm sober. Because if I'm ashamed and embarrassed, then I'm just adding to the guilt and I don't need any more of that. You don't need any more of that either. We have enough guilt. We have enough resentment. We have enough to be ashamed about. 
I'm not saying that you should be ashamed of those things, but I'm betting that you are. Your sobriety, you being clean, you being recovered is not one of those things to be embarrassed or ashamed about. People need to see more success stories, more successful people out there living the sober life, living the clean life, living the good life, and sharing where they came from. I know it's hard, but at least be open about it. Let people know that it's not a stigma. It's not a label that you're ashamed of. You are not the disease. You are not the things that you did. You are not that person. And the only way you can accept that and get over that is if you own the person you are now. I'm not Melissa the alcoholic. I'm Melissa the recovered and she is a good person. She does good things. But she deserves to be proud of who she is. Because as fucked up as it all was, she made it. She made it. She survived. You've got to forgive yourself for whatever you had to do to get here. I have to tell myself that I was fighting to just stay alive, to just survive, and you have to get to the place and the point where you give yourself that credit to. Whatever you had to do to get here, you had to do it. Give yourself some grace. You've gotta learn how to figure for yourself. I told you guys, I'm driven by guilt and gratitude. And I continue to share my story because I know how much it impacted me to hear someone else's story. To start to think of the one that I would write and create on my own. So I'll continue to share, even though it's hard, even though I had a mini anxiety attack about recording this episode. Because yeah, there are pieces of my life that I would like to pretend didn't happen. But they did. And if they didn't happen, then I wouldn't be who I am today. I have to be grateful for that. I have to be grateful for every relapse, for everything that taught me something about who I am and about how strong I am. What is life teaching you? Are you taking the lessons? Are you becoming better? Because it doesn't matter what you did yesterday. All that you can do and control right now is what you do today, what you will do tomorrow. That person, you have the choice. You can make the decision to be better, to show up better for yourself, which ultimately gives the best you to everyone else who you love. And we're out of time because this one went really long. So I'm sorry about that. Fuck that. I'm not sorry. If you are still listening, then thank you for your support. It means so much. You have no idea. So I would love 
for you to leave me a review, send me a message, share this episode with someone or anyone who needs to hear it. Thanks, guys. I will see you next week. As always, thanks for listening. I believe in you. You can do all of the things, and I will see you guys next week.